Let's, uh, let's go to Romans uh, chapter 12, like we uh, just heard. And uh, today we're in verse 9 through uh, 13, Romans 12, 9 to 13. Can't wait to share this with you. So uh, I want to read this uh, out loud and then uh, pray and jump into it. We're going verse by verse through the book of Romans if you're new today. But we come to uh, verse uh, 9 of chapter 12. Paul writing. And I, I want you to think about it like this as we're reading through this. It's easy to kind of read this section of Romans like Paul is just like it's a shotgun blast of thoughts, you know, like this thought, that thought, this thought. I want you to think about it, though, all connected to the first sentence. Let your love be genuine. And then he's describing all the ingredients of real biblical love after that. Okay, so I think they're very connected to each other. So let's read it together. Verse 9, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Verse 12, rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute, verse 13, to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Lord, this morning we pray that your word would be like a scalpel performing its surgery, Lord, in our hearts, that we might be changed and transformed, Lord, as the mirror of your word is held up in front of us and we see, Lord, ourselves. We ask, Lord, and pray that you might grow us more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. And the great love that Jesus had for us, Father, we pray that that version and brand of love would invade our hearts. And Lord, that we ourselves would be loving people. Help us, Lord, with this love, though. We fall so far short. And so we ask, Lord, and pray for your grace, your spirit, your transformation in us. And Lord, I pray that as I explain each one of these five statements, as I teach them, Lord, and as I try to ask questions and apply them, Lord, I pray that you'd help me by your spirit, that you give me, Lord, your energy, your insight, your power, Lord, right now in this moment. We pray, Lord, for all of that uh, in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, we pray. Amen. Amen. Have you ever thought about uh, the word priorities? Priorities. It's an interesting word because, of course, it's the plural of the word priority, and, and priority has the idea of a singular focus, like the most important thing. That's what makes the word priorities interesting to me because it has within it the idea of many one things. So in the Bible, there's a priority. There's a lot of things as Christians that we're to put our attention on, that we're to focus on, but there is a priority in the Christian life, and the priority is love. They asked Jesus, What is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, the greatest commandment is this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So for us, the beginning of Christian maturity, vitality, life, energy, transformation, sanctification, it's all about love, developing the love that's coming out of our lives. And Paul's timing for this statement is very appropriate. Because last week, he began to talk to us about the spiritual gifts. We saw that in verse 6 through 8. He says, the gifts that you have, use them. In the body of Christ, 
Use them. We are a body. Use the gifts that God has given to you. And then immediately after saying, you're a body, you're in the body of Christ, use your gifts, he says, but make sure that your love is a genuine kind of love. Now, some of you are astute, and you recognize this pattern from Paul. He used this pattern when he wrote his letter to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians. And there he explained to them what the gifts look like. He gave them a list of some of the gifts. He actually explained the body of Christ in much more detail than we saw last week. And in the middle of this explanation in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, and 14 about the spiritual gifts, he gave us 1 Corinthians 13, where he talked about the importance of love inside the body of Christ. We like to read it at weddings, quote it at weddings, because it's a description of what love is. But Paul wasn't giving it in a marital context. He was giving it in a church context. Not that you should feel bad if you had it read at your wedding or are planning on having it read at your wedding someday. It's a good wedding passage. It's just that the primary context of it is in the body of Christ, in the use of your gifts, your love needs to be on point. This is what Paul said in that passage in 1 Corinthians 13, 1-3. He said, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have no love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. That was Paul's way of saying, I'm just an annoying sound if I don't have love. And if I have prophetic powers, and I understand all mysteries, and all knowledge. You know, I know things. I have great insights, great intellect, great giftings, and I have all the faith in the world so as to move mountains, but have not love. I am nothing. And if I gave, give away everything that I have, I'm, I'm hyper generous. I have an, an extreme gift of generosity. If I give away everything I have, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, and I deliver my body up to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is preeminent in the life of the believer. And so that's what we're going to study this morning. We're going to take a look at the importance, the singular importance of love uh, inside the body of Christ. Now, in teaching this, let's look at that first little line, verse 9. Did you see it there? I want to remind you of it. He says, let love be genuine. Let love be genuine. You know, in teaching on a subject like love, there's a lot of challenges. I think one of the challenges is that it's really not a subject that people, Christians, tend to disagree with. You know, like if when I say like, hey, we need to love each other, and that's important in the Bible, you know, for the most part, we're all like, yeah, that's true. We need to love each other, you know? And so the challenge, though, is, but how? How do we make this a part of the fabric of our lives. And that's, that's how I want to teach this this morning. I want to try to explain this to a degree where we see ways in which this can be a major uh, part of our lives. Remember last week, Paul talked about the church like a body. I men mentioned that already. We are the members of that body. If that's so, then love is like the circulatory system that is pumping blood throughout that body. And if a body or a congregation has everything, but they don't have love, they've got nothing. What makes a church incredible? Is it the music? Is it the kids' ministry? Is it the preacher's beard, as wonderful as it might be? Is it, is it any of that? You know, No, it's none of that. It's love. 
Love is what, what's needed. Love is what makes a body of Christ special, beautiful, wonderful, something worth giving your life for. Uh, one of the things that we should see here is that love is more than a feeling. It's not an emotion. The world thinks of love in that way. It's just a feeling that comes upon me for a moment. But, but that's not the way Paul talks about it. Love is, according to the Bible, the greatest action word that has ever existed. When Jesus was on the cross, he was loving the world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So love is a decided action, something that we are choosing to engage ourselves in. And every one of these exhortations that Paul is about to give us is rooted in the concept of making sure that our love is genuine. Right, so that first exhortation, though, let your love be genuine, it has within it the idea that we would be tempted as a people to make our love not genuine. Maybe another word would be hypocritical, to have a hypocritical level of love, to treat the body of Christ or the church like a stage that we are acting upon. All right, so we know that we're to reject that. Our love's to be real, it's to be genuine. But let me ask you this, why might we be tempted to love in a less than genuine way inside the church, inside the body of Christ? And there's probably a lot of reasons, one of them just being the, the sinful tendencies inside of our own uh, hearts. But if you really think about it, the church is so different because in every other community, that we might involve ourselves in on this earth, there are other things that tie us together. In other words, you're going to be in communities here on earth that you are connected because of a shared interest. Maybe it's a hobby, something you like to do. You know, I like other runners, you know, and I like talking about running with them. It's something that we do that binds us together. It's a shared interest. Maybe a shared interest like a career that you're involved in, work that you're involved in. You just get each other because you have the same tensions that you're dealing with in life. Uh, maybe uh, it's an, an age group or a generation that you relate to. Maybe it's you know a, uh, an economic status or a, a kind of a cultural, like, I belong to this income bracket, so I understand and can connect with people who also belong with this income bracket. Maybe it's the color of your skin. It can be a lot of different things where we might have a natural bond or connection, but in the body of Christ, all of that is blown up. And we come into the church, the body of Christ, and the common denominator is the blood of Jesus. So we're very different from one another. We come here with all of our differences and our backgrounds and our histories, and yet there's a oneness that comes upon us because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And I think that that diversity combined with the unity tied together by the blood of Jesus can lead us to a temptation to have a love that is less than genuine. Uh, that's why it's so beautiful when a church is able to have a difference of, you know, people involved in it. When everybody looks exactly the same, talks exactly the same, behaves exactly the same, perhaps it's because they need to grow in loving outside of their uh, little box. And so, but it is a temptation. It's maybe not even a temptation. It's just something that might come naturally, naturally to us. So Paul says, let your love make sure that it is genuine in nature.
Okay, now he has five statements that he's going to make to us uh, that describe for us the way this love is supposed to look. And the first ingredient, you, sort, you could sort of imagine Paul like a baker right now, you know, in his kitchen. He's telling us, hey, love is awesome, and I'm going to bake you like a love pie or something like that. And here's all the different ingredients that go into making love radical. Like I said, the first thing in our mind usually is some like warm, sentimental, sappy, you know, kind of thing, you know. Uh, and I naturally go there. Like, what are you preaching about this Sunday? Oh, I'm going to talk about love, you know. And it just sounds like, okay, we're going to turn our heads to the side, and we're going to just like, man, I, I love you. You know, I just love you. Well, the first ingredient is so disconnected from that. He says at the end of verse 9, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. The first ingredient of real legitimate love is an absolute abhorrence of evil and a clinging to what's good. Some of us think that the Bible teaches don't do the evil and just do the good. But Paul goes further than that. He makes the poles more extreme. He says, abhor the things that are evil and hold fast. That's the, that's the word that we use when we say a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife or hold fast to his wife. It's a marital word. That's the same word. Hold fast to what is good. Paul is using extreme language. We need to understand that this is exactly how God loves. We're imitating God on this point. Because God's hatred of sin stems from and flows from his extreme love for mankind. If God did not love mankind, then he would be indifferent towards our sin. But because he loves mankind and he sees what sin does to us, how it pulverizes us, he hates sin. And so for us as believers to imitate God, the first ingredient of our love is that we abhor that which is evil and we cling, we hold fast to that which is good. I want you to see there that Paul is holding out to us a biblical norm. And what I mean by that is in the Bible, there are not just these commands to don't do this and don't do that. A lot of people have reduced the Christian life to that. It's turn from one thing in order to pursue another thing. Paul said it like this in 2 Timothy verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 22. He said, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. It's one thing to, to flee. It's another thing to pursue. You don't just have to concentrate on don't do, don't do, don't do. You replace all of that with a new pursuit, a new target of your affection. And so Paul tells us, abhor what is evil and hold fast to that which is good. A question that we might ask ourselves at this point, if you're taking notes, you can write this down, but just kind of a good question, I think, to think about when you're wrestling with a little verse like this is to ask the question, are there things that I ought to abhor that I have accommodated? Are there things that I should abhor but I have accommodated, that I've just kind of brought into my life and I've become comfortable with those things when here's the word of God asking me to abhor that which is evil. I'm sure you've heard this illustration before. I almost hate to use it because it 
feels like such a overused or maybe like a youth pastor kind of illustration, but I think it works. You know, I heard a story once, and I'm, I'm fairly certain it's not true, but a story of a teenage boy asking his mom, hey mom, you know, my friends are going out, they're doing this or that, and they were going to get into a little, they're going to kind of, it's going to be a little bit of a gray area kind of activity. And their mom was like, well, you know, that's not cool. You, you, you shouldn't be doing that. You shouldn't see that, hear that. You know, that shouldn't be a part of your life. And he's like, oh, mom, it's not that bad. You know, you're so ancient, old school, like loosen up a little bit, you know, kind of thing. And she was like, oh, okay, well, if it's just a little bad, then that's fine. You know, and she said, okay, cool, that's, go ahead and go. And so while he was preparing and getting ready to go out for the night, she went into the backyard where the family dog lived, and she found uh, some of the evidences of the family dog, I'll just say it, dog poop, and um, she just took a little piece of it. And she went inside, and she baked some brownies, and she mixed into the brownie mix just a little bit, just a teeny bit. Don't freak out. It was just a small amount. She baked the brownies. She set them out on the plate. He comes out ready to go out for the night. Mom, you made my favorite brownies. And she's like, yeah, I did. You know, enjoy. They smell good, all that. But hey, before you sink your teeth into them, I have to warn you, uh, there's a secret ingredient. And he's like, Mom, what'd you put in these? What's the secret ingredient? Well, you know, the family dog. I just took, it's just a little bit. It's not much. Don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. And she said, it's just a little bit. And he's like, okay, Mom, I get the point. I get the point. I won't go out and do what my friends are doing. I think we all understand the concept. We so often will accommodate a little bit of evil when the Bible tells us that we've got to abhor evil and cling to that which is good. Now, what do we normally do with a verse like this? Our natural man thinks of all the evil that we naturally find abhorrent, that we would never want to do. And we say, that's right, I abhor that. Check. But, you know, pastorally, I think part of my job is to help us think about this a little bit. And so I was thinking about four sins I'm sure there could be 10, there could probably be two, but I'm thinking about four that I think we might allow ourselves to grow comfortable with. I think one of the sins that we should abhor a little bit more uh, are sins of the tongue. Sins of the tongue. James said in James chapter 3 that the tongue is like a fire. It's, it's, a, it's a world of iniquity. And we, we live in Northern California. We don't need... Uh, to even, I mean, we see images all around us that show us how a little spark can cause such great damage. And I think so often we grow comfortable with sins of the mouth. And, you know, we might think that privacy uh, enables us or allows us to say things that we would never say to someone face-to-face. But sometimes we need to realize that in that private moment, what we are doing is we are cultivating cancer. Not only in our relationship with those we are speaking about, gossip, slander, evil speaking, but also we're creating a cancer in our own soul. Sometimes the, the joylessness that can come upon a person's heart is directly connected to the negativity that is coming out of their mouth. And if, if we were able to, to realize, ah, man, I gotta abhor that. 
I can't speak that way. I can't talk that way. I can't tear people down in that kind of way. We've got to watch out, I think, in that area. I think another one that we might grow complacent in from time to time in our society and culture would be the sin of greed, a a lack of contentment coming upon our lives. Jesus talked about covetousness as an eye-darkening sin. What that means is it's nearly impossible to see in ourselves. It's nearly impossible to see in ourselves. That's a real big reason why we need Christian community. We need light. We need mirrors to be shining upon our lives. I think another one might be the sin of partiality. Partiality. Taking people at face value. Seeing who they are externally and making a quick snap judgment about them by what we see rather than loving with impartiality as Jesus, by the gospel, loved us. And then maybe, and I just hold this one out, and I'm not saying every single one of us is struggling with all of these. I'm just saying these are some of those sneaky secret sins that get in there that we maybe should abhor that kind of we become complacent with. And I think maybe another one can be from time to time laziness coming into our lives. Just a a, a lack of strong work ethic and focus in what God has put in front of us. All right, so that's the first ingredient uh, of love. We move to the second ingredient, verse 10. Let's read it together again. He says, love one another with brotherly affection and outdo one another in showing honor. So this is cool. This is kind of more the natural ingredient that we might think of when it comes to love. We're to love one another. And Paul uses family words to describe that. Brotherly affection and uh, loving one another. This is a familial uh, kind of love. And of course, Jesus said this to the disciples in John 13 and in John 15. He gave us a new commandment that we would love one another, that the world would know that we are his disciples if we love one another. So, you know, we get that. Yeah, we're to, to love one another. We should have that family affection for each other. Notice here, though, in verse 10, it's not just that we should love the world. We should love the world. But here, in a special way, we must love each other inside the church, inside the body of Christ. And then he has this cool way of saying it there at the end of verse 10. Did you notice that? He says, and, and not only are you to love each other with that like brotherly affection, that intimate family kind of love, but you are to outdo one another in showing honor. So it's kind of like, a contest almost. That's, that's the way it reads to me. Like, all right, we're going to have a showdown here of who can outdo everyone else in showing honor. Like, oh, you show me a little bit of honor? Well, I will not be outdone. I will show you more honor, you know, kind of thing. And the beautiful thing is that in the body of Christ, we have a million opportunities to do this. Because like I said, we come together very different from one another. So those who are married have an opportunity in the body of Christ to show deep and beautiful honor to those who are unmarried and single in the body of Christ. We're not to be a married group pressuring a single group to become like the married group. No, we're to honor and to esteem and hold high. We have an opportunity, the older, to honor and esteem and value the younger and vice versa. There are many opportunities inside the body of Christ to show that radical honor for and to one another. So maybe in verse 10, some questions that we might ask. Again, if you're taking notes, you might ask the question, 
is it possible for me to love other believers in my current life structure? Just kind of the way that I've designed my life. Am I around believers? And I like one sense that I have about some of these statements is it's not that we need a conviction about this. I think we all understand that we, we, we want to do this. We need to do this. I don't think we need a conviction. Sometimes it's just need, we, we need a calendar to do this. It's very hard. In a fast-paced, busy life, there are people that we'll so often spend way more time with than we will with other believers. And so I think in one sense, it's just, man, do I have opportunities in my current life structure to love the body of Christ? Maybe another question. This is a question I would, I would posit to everybody, but especially to men. Do I know other men? Do I have other men in my life that I know well enough to be able to live this out with? You know, because there are obviously degrees to this. You know, there are parts of the church, the body of Christ, that got together on Sunday morning 12 hours ago. On the other side of the world, they met together, and like in a technical sense, I'd say, I love them. I love the body of Christ. I love the church. But like, I don't know them. I don't have that personal dynamic and relationship with them. So it gets a little tighter right here in this community. Like I can say, I love you, and I hope that you would say, and we love you too, you know, kind of thing. But the reality is, even in this setting and context, it doesn't mean that every single person that we rub shoulders with on this campus, we're going to have this like deep, self-revealing kind of relationship with, right? That's going to be reserved to a small amount of people that we open our hearts up to. And so the question is, do I know anybody to that level? Do I have that brand of relationship with others in my life? That's a, an important question. Do I, is there anybody that could be the target of my love in that kind of way? So I think on this point, you know, just my heart. I remember years ago, you know, when we were just kind of developing as a church, um, you know, we, ha- we had a, like a different style of the way that we would, structure as a church. We had, I think at one point, 46 different ministries as a church. And when a church this size has 46 different ministries, what that means is that the same group of people run 46 different ministries and attend 46 different ministries. It's just, you know, like counterproductive kind of thing. And what I started noticing was after services on Sunday, we would close in prayer and it was almost, it was like, man, bring your running shoes because we are running to the parking lot as quick as we can to get out of here, you know, kind of thing. It was like, I don't know you. I don't know you. Like, I love you technically, but like, I, you know, personally, and, we, and everybody was just gone. And the big thing that we did at that point secondarily was we had a midweek service. So it was a lot like this. Usually in the Old Testament, I would teach verse by verse through the Bible technology changed, life changed, I realized I can do a lot of teaching online, writing, communicating, in a lot of different kind of ways, but we need to come together to get to know each other. And I think it's been effective and successful. But on the other hand, I just don't want you to forget it when you come here on Sunday to love one another right here. You know, some of you like know all kinds of people, and so when you get here, you're looking for your people. But you need to look around for people who don't have their people yet. You need, to keep, you need to keep your eyes open. 
A lot of times you can tell that they don't have people yet because they're wandering around by themselves. And maybe they want to be by themselves. You'll figure it out real quick. You know, when you engage them, you start asking some questions. But a lot of times people are coming here because this world that we live in is a very lonely place. And to interact with human beings, to, to be asked how you're doing, to have conversations with people is so valuable. It's part of the reason why we built the grill in the first place, so that we would have an opportunity to easily move into more extended fellowship and times together. And uh, this is just kind of the, the vision that I was given from a very early age. You know, I've, I was just used to always being, as a pastor's kid, the last person at church, you know, I was just really used to it. And I was very used to my parents saying like, all right, we're going to go. And I would just like in my mind be like, yeah, right, we're going to go. You know, we're going to get 10 feet and you're going to start talking to someone else, you know. So like just when you get in the car, I'll be there, you know, kind of thing. I just got very used to that. And for us to just linger with the body of Christ. Obviously, we have things to do, places to go, stuff we need to take care of. But part of being here on Sunday, I think, is to take advantage of it and to get everything that we can out of it, to love one another in uh, that kind of way. Okay, enough said about that exhortation. Let's move on to verse 11. He says there, you know, concerning love, he says, you know, part of love is that we are fervent in the way we serve the Lord. He says it this way, do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. You know, what love does to you in your service of Jesus is it makes you fervent. It takes away a a slothful, half-hearted service unto the Lord. What brings that, by the way? What brings that sloth in zeal or lack of fervency in spirit well i think a lot of times life just does that don't you think life can just chew us up can i get an amen anybody agree with that i mean life can just pulverize us from time to time and a lot of times when we begin with zeal because we come up against obstacles it just hurts and our zeal begins to wane we see this in a lot of different environments maybe you know somebody joins the military because at, at first they just had uh, like a believe in the mission and maybe as time goes on they become less and less passionate for that mission or they see decisions being made that they don't agree with and there's just like a thing in their heart and the zeal begins to wane i don't think that has to happen but it can or maybe somebody says i want to be a teacher I want to go into the school system. I'm going to take these young lives and shape them and mold them. And then they just come in and they get decimated by parents and curriculums and all this stuff. And it's like, man, I had a zeal for this thing. And, and it's, it's begun to wane. I've begun to lose it. And this can happen, obviously, in our service of the Lord as well. Doing what we do for Jesus and the ministries that we're involved in and the way that we're using our gifts for the kingdom of God. It's easy for a lack of zeal to come upon our hearts through discouragement or disillusionment. But man, we've got to press on. I have this little verse from Jeremiah chapter 1 taped to my computer monitor that I do a lot of work on, you know, a lot of study, a lot of thinking, writing. As Jeremiah 1 verse 17, God says to Jeremiah, but you dress yourself for work 
arise and say to them everything that I command you. There's this thing within us where we need that exhortation. Like, go for it wholeheartedly. Serve the Lord completely with your life. So maybe some questions we would ask at this point is, how is my enthusiasm for serving Christ? How is my enthusiasm for serving Christ? Do I serve the Lord? That's what he's saying here. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. I remember when Pastor Brenton, who was leading worship this morning here in the main sanctuary, um, I remember when he first came here and, and became one of the pastors. And, you know, the worship ministry was a good ministry, and there were great people involved. But he just came in, and he brought this level of attention, where it was like, look, if you're going to play for the Lord, you're going to be ready to play for the Lord. If you are going to stand and sing for the Lord, you are going to be devoted to the Lord and devoted to that work. You're going to know your songs. You're going to be ready and prepared. We're going to be unified together. And he just brought this fervency and this passion that was refreshing. I watched Pastor Andrew do the same thing in Calvary Kids. And, you know, he used to share with me, you know, uh, there's a, lo- a lot of folks, uh, they're serving, and they're there, you know, early, like, like we asked them to be, and they're prepared and everything like that. But, man, there's a contingent coming in late, rolling in after parents, you know, stuff like that. Man, I got I to gotta get that. I got to get that. And he's just slowly just chipped away at it. And, and he's been telling me, man, there's a fervency there. There's a zeal there. Like, man, we're here to serve these families, serve these children. When they walk in the room, we want them to be ready in that moment, to feel good and welcomed and all of that. That's a fervency in serving the Lord. And of course, in our workplaces, man, we have to have that same concept within our own hearts. How do you stir up that fervency? I think there's a lot of different ways. Uh, But one main way is just to understand this. You're serving the Lord. You're serving the Lord. Behind your boss is the Lord. Behind your professor in your college class is the Lord. The Lord is behind that. And to be considering, man, I'm serving the Lord. And what I do is for the Lord. It says in Colossians 3, verse 23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Paul then goes on to say, you are serving the Lord Christ. So in our everyday activity, behind the people that we're serving, behind the, maybe the customers that you're taking care of, the patients that you're nurturing and taking care of, behind all of them is the Lord. And maybe that will help you with the fervency in your own heart and in your own life. All right, verse 12. Let's look at this little line. Part of love is that love helps us endure difficult stuff because notice the nod to the difficulty of life in verse 12. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. All of those lines put together, all of them are an acknowledgement that this life, it can be very difficult. It's why we need to rejoice in hope. We have, we're hoping for the return of Christ. That's what's being said there. We're also acknowledging, he's acknowledging there is tribulation, there is trial. 
be patient in it because it won't last forever for a Christian. It's going to end at some point. It's temporary. It's but for a moment. You just, had, you just had a new kid. Everybody said congratulations, and you're like, why are you congratulating me? I haven't slept for three months, you know, kind of thing. Be patient. In tribulation, it's not going to last forever. And be constant in prayer. This is prayer that is connected to God in the middle of difficulty. It's the oxygen tank where there is no air to breathe. You're crying out to God in the middle of your tribulation. So, you know, maybe some questions that we might ask here is we might say, well, how could prayer help me through the pain of this earth? How could I develop that prayer life more fully? And how could maybe a stronger anticipation or looking forward to the coming of Jesus lift my spirits and give me hope of what God is doing here on earth? I I just remind you, there are almost 200 nations on earth. The United States of America is just one of them. We're a small percentage of the seven and a half billion people who live on planet earth right now. And many believers all over the face of the earth, when they see the difficulties of their time, they have little to no hope in the governmental system that they are under. But they are setting their sights upon heaven, the return of Jesus, that one day he will come and rule and reign. They're setting their sights upon him. This is what Paul said to the Thessalonian church in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 2. He said, you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Do you have that awareness in your heart? They call it imminency. Do you have this anticipation of the imminent coming of Christ for you? You might say, well, that's, yeah, I don't share the same eschatology that you have, Holdridge. Well, then maybe you should just uh, have a different thing in your heart of my heartbeat is not going to last forever. There's your imminency right there. All right? Jesus could be coming for you personally at any moment. And if we, if we could just have that within our heart, if we could have that within our soul, I think it helps us to endure the trials and the difficulties of this world and life. All right, let's look at the last exhortation in verse 13. I know it's been a lot, but he says there in verse 13, finally, he says, part of our love is what love is. Again, I told you, I already told you, love is not just this like feeling. I just feel, I got, I got strong feels towards you. It's more than that, all right? It, it goes way beyond affections. It might not even include affections, honestly. Here's what it is. It goes into this realm. Contribute, verse 13, to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Man, this is where love gets so for real. So for real. He says, contribute to the needs of the saints. You know, when you just open your life up and you begin to know other believers, and as you start knowing other believers, as you are in fellowship with other believers, as you are knowing them and as they are knowing you, get ready, man, because you will learn about needs in other people's lives. And when you do, you will have an opportunity to help them, to aid them, 
to assist them. Paul isn't holding out some organizational function of the church. He's talking about individual believers. And that we will, from time to time, in Christian community, come up against needs of the saints. We'll see needs in the world, but here he says the needs of the saints. And not only that, but we want to seek. We're looking for, he says there in verse 13, opportunities to show hospitality. Now, in the Bible, I, you know, I know what we do with the word hospitality. When, when I hear hospitality, I think about like, oh, I should have somebody over on Friday night. Like, that's, that's what I think about with hospitality. I think about, here, here, honestly, the word that comes into my mind is this. I, I have these Danish friends, and they taught me this word years ago. I think it's hugla or something like that. And what it is is, in, in Denmark, during the wintertime, it's dark like crazy. You know, they're so far north. The daylight is so short, and it's so cold, and as a result, like, the whole nation is prone to depression for, like, the whole winter. So what they do is they, they're like, man, we got to combat this. We got to attack this. And so what they do is they buy, basically, the whole nation buys a bunch of candles. That's what they do. And they just set them up in their home, and they invite people over, and they create this, like, cozy environment. That's what I think about naturally when I think of hospitality. I'm like, okay, I'm going to have people over. We're going to have like a cool vibe, you know, some jazz playing in the background, and we're just going to like hang out, and it'll be, I'll be hospitable, you know, like you want some food? Would you like seconds? In New Testament times, hospitality, I'm not saying it didn't include that, but it was way bigger than that because they didn't have reliable inns throughout the world or hotels that people could lodge in when they were traveling. Christians were being persecuted, so they're having to leave their home countries and cities and move away into places they didn't know. And Christian missions were brand new. You know, the gospel was going out into the world for the very first time. And it's not like they'd go to a brand new country and say, where's the missions base or center that we can connect with? They had to rely on the hospitality of the rare people in the church who owned homes opening up their homes. And for all of those reasons, that's why hospitality would be encouraged to the New Testament church. In other words, it probably has less to do with making plans on Friday night, and it probably has a little bit more to do with our attitude towards refugees and people that are, uh, you know, displaced and Christian missions and opening our hearts to those who are planning churches and things like that. It probably has more to do with that. I'm not saying that it then wouldn't also touch on our Friday night. It's just... Man, if it means that, if it means all this, then of course it would also touch on just the way that I open up my life uh, to the believers uh, in an everyday uh, kind of way. It was just a necessity in that world. All right, so the early church, they practiced this, they operated in this, and Paul is exhorting the church in Rome and exhorting us, live also in this way, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. All right, so I hope after looking at all of those, you know, sometimes I'll say to you, and we'll say to you, we'll say to each other, man, that we really need each other, and that the Christian life cannot be lived in isolation. Hopefully, just by looking at five sentences, 
you're able to be convinced about that. You know, some, sometimes someone will ask me, like, show me a verse that tells me that I have to go to church. I'm like, really? You know, you just read the New Testament and you come away with the conclusion, this life that is being described here is impossible to live out of fellowship. It is impossible to live in isolation. I have to be with other believers in order to live this kind of life. And I really think, you know, that on our deathbeds, when we look back on our lives, if we're so fortunate to be able to have that kind of reflection in our lives, I really think that, you know, we're not going to be thinking to ourselves, man, I should have worked a little harder. I wish I'd have made a little more money. I wish I'd have, you know. I think we're going to think about people and the relationships that we had. You know, obviously we have to work. We have to make bread. We have to do all that. I understand that. We understand that. But love is something that, re- that requires others, people. And, and part, of my, part of my struggle in even communicating these verses is just understanding that sometimes it requires like life shifts to be able to do some of this stuff. And for that, sometimes it's easily dismissible. But I just hope that like medicine, these words just kind of go into our hearts, just evaporate in there or dissolve within there, I should say, and become a part of us. How might this change us as we grow in our sanctification, as we're transformed? We certainly can't do all of these things overnight. But how can we trend in that direction? Hospitality, generosity, others-centered love. How can I progress towards that? I think it's part of the life of sanctification that Paul is holding out for us. Amen? All right, so what I'm going to do now is I'm going to close in prayer, and then um, we're going to take communion together as a church. The bread and the cup, it's for Christians, for believers, and I think it's very appropriate to do it today. Uh, so I'm just going to pray, and uh, they'll pass out the bread and the cup. So if you're a Christian, this is for you, so just hold it in your hands, and in a moment, I'll lead us taking it all together at the same time. So Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for these little exhortations, Lord, that are so full of, of life and conviction and Lord, are very difficult for us to live in a lot of ways. Help us, Lord, we pray. Help us, we ask. We need, Lord, the strength of your spirit. We need, Lord, your ability to be able to tune our lives uh, to your voice, to what you desire, Lord, for us. We've said yes to your mission, my body for God's glory, and now we're seeing it described. Lord, Lord, I feel that I've fallen so far short. I thank you for the gospel that has saved me and forgiven me of my sin. And I pray, Lord, that you'd continue to redeem me to be more and more like Jesus, loving like him. Bless us now, Lord, as we eat this meal. In Jesus' name, amen.